everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. My name is Mike Gibb, and I run AccountRecovery.net, and I'm excited again to be part of this podcast. We've got two great experts, Kelly Nepper-Stevens from True Accord and Nicole Strickler from Messer Strickler, with us to offer their perspectives on important compliance-related topics for the credit and collection industry. The objective is for Kelly and Nicole to work out the often competing considerations of an in-house counsel and an outside defense counsel. Kelly currently serves as a vice president of legal and compliance at True Accord. Nicole serves as a partner at Messer Strickler. Kelly, Nicole, great to be working with you again on this podcast. Excited to have you back. Um, Looking forward to our conversation on uh, today on a topic that I think is troubling many agencies across the country with respect to their collection letters, uh, and that's balance issues and itemization. Kelly, you want to kick us off? Thanks, Mike. Very glad to be here with you today. Appreciate your willingness to host as always. I wanted to talk about collection letters again because there's a litany of new cases around folks that are itemizing in their collection notices. And I know from an agency perspective that a lot of you listening probably have clients who often suggest that you provide an itemization, even if it's not required by law. We know that New York and a couple of other states might require itemization either on the initial communication or upon request. Right now, the FDCPA does not require any itemization, although in the debt collection rulemaking, the CFPB does suggest that itemization would be required. So a recent case came out. I thought we were kind of done with this with the Avila, followed by the Taylor, where we know that if interest is accruing, we put the notice on from Miller and McCalla. If interest is not accruing, it's okay that we don't say anything. But here we have the Verdon case out of the Northern District of Ohio, where a court looking at a 12B6 motion found that the following language was confusing. It was a breakdown on the collection letter that said, balance due at charge off, and had the total showing, interest, $0, other charges, $0, payments made, $0, current balance, and has the same total as balance due at charge off. And the court went ahead and ruled in favor of the plaintiff and did not dismiss the case Uh, based on the pleadings saying that this language might actually be confusing or misleading to the consumer as it would lead them to believe that the agency or the creditor might eventually be charging interest, other charges or payments, and that it might change from zero. Nicole, what is happening here? (laughs) That's an excellent question, Kelly. What, what is the world coming to? Um, where where someone can say interest is zero and there is a reasonable inform- inference from that that uh, interest will continue to accrue. Um, what's, what's interesting about the, this, this decision is that really there's diverging uh, views on it depending upon what circuit you're in, depending upon what judge you are, um, it's definitely something, uh, somewhat of a, a theory that has spread um, and is continuing. Um, so it, I've seen decisions both ways. Um, 
I think the tough part about this particular decision is that it's on a motion for judgment on the pleadings as opposed to a motion for summary judgment, which I feel like um, you would have probably had a better argument here if it had been on a motion for summary judgment, because obviously they can't consider anything other than what's in the pleading itself. Um, I, you know, my personal opinion here is that I think the concept that interest zero dollars would lead someone to believe that interest will be charged in the future is kind of silly, but you know, I'm not an article three judge. So what can I say? Um, you know, that being said, I think, um, one of the, the interesting points about it is that we had a, a very similar case that was just decided um, in the Seventh Circuit on the district court level that didn't even consider whether or not the letter could be considered to be misleading, but actually dismissed on standing grounds uh, alone. And uh, that was the, the Abinsky case um, versus OAC. That was in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. So that court took a completely different approach than, than the Verdun case, which said, hey, yeah, it's potentially misleading, um, and said, we don't even think that, the, that even if it was potentially misleading, that the debtor has ad adequately alleged standing, like an actual injury in fact. So you're seeing kind of different results depending upon where you are and what judge you're in front of, um, which I think kind of tees it up for a decision at appellate level somewhere. Yeah, well, and that would be nice having some sort of certainty when we're looking at our collection letters, because certainly the goal is to avoid these sort of lawsuits and avoid having to mount a standing defense as opposed to just not getting the lawsuit altogether. So I want to know, uh, it sounds like the best thing to do if you get one of these is to bring a standing claim is also to not file a motion to dismiss on the pleadings, but instead to get some evidence on the record, uh, both to support a standing claim and to support a motion to just a summary judgment motion, basically. I agree. I mean, I think when you're looking at standing, well, when you're thinking about a motion to dismiss, right, you're thinking, okay, am, is this a situation where the court is going to let this party replead? Right. And if it is a situation where the court is going to allow the party to replead, then are they going to be able to actually replead and not get it dismissed again? So, so if you think this is like fixable, then don't, don't file a motion to dismiss. It's kind of like, what's the point? Setting it up for a motion for summary judgment from a strategic perspective is just clearly superior. Um, because one, you're not letting the plaintiff know what you're thinking and what they need to be arguing. Um, and two, you have this potential to amass evidence from the consumer, you know, him or herself, like through either deposition or, you know, interrogatories where you can nail them down to the fact that really they weren't really confused about anything. They didn't change their behavior about anything. So how did they really suffer an injury sufficient to convey standing to them to file the lawsuit, right? But if you file a motion to dismiss and the court, you know, ultimately dismisses it, 
but then gives the plaintiff a roadmap as to what they really need to be complaining about in terms of injury, you're almost like in a worse off position, right? For sure. All right, but let's not get to that position at all. Let's talk about the actual language we should have in our collection letter to avoid these kind of claims entirely. So the in the Verdun case, the court really talks a lot about using the term current balance and distinguishes the initial notice here in this case, which use the word current balance from some of the other cases that courts did dismiss in favor of the defendant where the language had less ambiguity, right? And I guess less ambiguity means didn't use the word current. Instead, it said amount and total for balance. So I remove the word current from all of my text so that it just says balance or total as opposed to total due. Um, should I remove language such as balance as of today's date on our payment communications and just have it say balance because obviously that's the balance from today's date? Such, such good questions. Um, I think it depends on, you know, I, I, I'd have different answers for you depending upon what circuit you're in. So Here's a here's a great example. Um, we just had a case, Cohen versus Delta Outsource Group, and in that case, the Seventh Circuit considered whether the term current balance gave the unsophisticated debtor the impression that the balance may change in the future. And the court unequivocally said, no, like this, this is not going to, you know, the language is what it is and the plain meaning of the term current balance is nothing more than this is the balance right now. It doesn't say anything about what, whether it will or will not change. Um, and actually there's some great language in that opinion about basically, you know, disingenuous interpretations by enterprising, you know, consumer counsel in these types of claims. Um, and that, you know, you know, absolute crystal clear clarity is not is not required. So if you're at least in the Seventh Circuit, you know, Indiana, Wisconsin, um, Illinois, you can use the term current balance without giving the impression to anybody that the balance is subject to change. And I've seen these current balance lawsuits for a long time. Um, so it's great to get that that finality. But you may get a different result depending upon, you know, if you're in a different circuit. You know, you can just think about the fact that, you know, the Seventh Circuit and the Sixth Circuit are very different in what they consider to constitute, you know, standing even, um, you know, in the context of a pure statutory violation case like like the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. So so it's certainly possible if you're in a different circuit, you know, you should maybe not consider that. What, what I always say to people, though, is, I mean, you can always just take the language straight out of the statute, right? amount of debt? Isn't that what 1692G requires? Well, let me see, as I have my copy of the FDCPA. <laughs> my your, your, your desktop version, right? I know, I know for sure that it says amount of debt because I happen to have memorized 1692G. Uh, <laughs> so amount of debt, what a great idea. I don't know why I have not thought of that yet. You heard it here, uh, folks. So, because <laughs> but also creditor to whom the debt is owed, right? 
why don't you just say that instead of assignee and current creditor and, and anything else? All right. So Name of credit. So applying the keep it simple uh, principle, mm -hmm. right, to the collection letter, which seems hard in light of the variety of different court opinions across the U.S., the differences between the circuit. But if the Sixth Circuit, or at least some of the courts in the Sixth Circuit, are going to find that the word current has some sort of different application when it's viewed by the least sophisticated consumer, I might as well remove the word current in an effort to keep it simple or consider doing so to avoid drawing out these lawsuits um, and perhaps stick with the language in the statute, such as amount of debt or mm -hmm. creditor uh, to whom debt is owed. Uh, mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the itemization portion of it and sort of the breakdown because we know in, in New York, these cases came out just shortly after the New York debt collection law came out and it required the itemization. So everyone started putting the itemization there. And then the lawsuits came from our frequent fi filers in New York saying, oh, well, this is confusing because it's saying zero and it's confusing the consumer. And I, I think the courts in the Second Circuit went ahead and said, no, that's ridiculous. This is required by state law and using a zero is fine because it doesn't apply anything. There's a question about, and the Verdun case sort of suggests that maybe instead of showing zero dollars that one should use not applicable or NA. What are your thoughts about that generally? Um, I think if I recall even the New York rules relative to that section say you can say zero or NA mm -hmm. as well. I, I mean, I don't know that there's anything wrong with saying, you know, NA, you know, not applicable or whatever. Um, you know, I haven't really thought about whether that would give rise to something else. There's nothing I can really think about off the top of my head that would say that's necessarily wrong. Um, I, I do think at least you know, not that I can tell the future, but eventually when this goes up to an appellate court, I, I can't imagine, you know, at least in the Seventh Circuit where I'm most familiar with the court finding anything more than zero dollars equal, you know, means what it says, um, which is kind of like, again, going back to the Delta case, it's, you know, we don't need to read in every potential hypothetical to a word, you know, that's in a collection letter. If it just says something, it, it's just that something, not more. Um, but yeah, until that clarity is there, perhaps that is the better, the better approach, you know, not weighing in one way or the other. So either leave it off or if the number will not grow, writing and not applicable because it's zero and nothing is accruing. Yeah, I mean, I, I know people try to like standardize the letters as much as possible, which makes it difficult. So it's, you know, people want to have one collection letter that they can use in, in every state they collect, but the law sometimes is different in different states. So one state that may be okay with you saying zero as to interest, maybe another state hasn't decided that quite yet. So maybe the better better thing to do is if there's no no potential or possibility of interest, like don't even, don't mention it. I, I like my my 1692 G notices, and I know Kelly, I know you know this, but I like them to be as simple as possible and just include the really like the bare minimum of what, um, you know, what's required by statute and nothing more. 
Um, I think once you start adding things, even if you're trying to be helpful, you're, you're not necessarily going to be helpful when all is said and done because, you know, again, you, we have all these lawsuits that, that really are not about helping the consumer all the time. Well, and if they are about helping the consumer, it's, it's hard to tell because I feel like showing that, you know, no interest has been added since charge off, no other charges have been added and no payments have been made like the collection firm was attempting to do in the Verdun case was an attempt to be helpful to the consumer so they could see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, all right, well, there we go. Collection levels at their finest, how to properly balance. I think I'm taking away from this that if there's no possibility of interest accruing, leave it off, don't attempt to itemize. Let's wait for the CFPB rules to come out when they make that official. And hopefully um, they'll clarify a bit that particular section. So obvious what debts the CFPB requires an itemization on and which debts it does not. I'm right there with you. Me too, for what it's worth. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for bringing some clarity to a a, a very confusing and, and complicated topic. I I look forward to uh, tackling another important subject with you on our next episode. So Kelly Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today again. Thanks, Mike. Excellent, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. Kelly and Nicole will be back in the very near future with another episode. Until then, take care. Bye.